So it gives me a very great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker today. Please, uh, would you give a very, very warm Ellsbury Vineyard kind of a welcome to Peter Tate. It's good to be here at Aylesbury Vineyard Church, and thank you for that welcome. I understand there's a lot of different cultural backgrounds here today, and the work I have been doing has been to help people of different backgrounds to better understand each other, to work together better. So I hope to help you with that a bit today. You might be wondering why it's me that's here. So what is it that I'm bringing? I've had a lot of cultural training experience with church organizations. And for the past two years, I've been based at a church in Southall. That's an area near Heathrow Airport. It's culturally diverse. It's known as Little India. And there's also four roughly equal-sized faith traditions there, Um, Christian, Hindu, Sikh, and Muslim. And part of my role has been to help church groups to know how to better relate to the faiths and cultures around them, or also even to different cultures within their church. One of the basic commands for any church is to love one another. I tend to say it's a bit like the five love languages, which is a book that has been written by a Christian author for couples. And the message behind that says that we each appreciate love in different ways. So for one person, it could be it's receiving encouraging words. For another, it could be getting undivided attention. So we're all different. And we need to take that into account when we're relating to our partner. I think it's similar when we work across cultures, that we show respect to people in different ways, depending on their cultural background. The classic example in England is queuing. It's a really important cultural value. When someone jumps the queue in front of you, say at coffee or on the motorway, I can certainly, I can feel that just the deep feelings are rising within me. Yet in many cultures in the world, concept just doesn't exist. It's just, it's not part of their culture. So we show respect in this culture by joining the queue but there's other cultures where they will expect other things to be done, which we may not even know about. But it does raise in a church context a very important question. How do we love one another in a multicultural church? Some training that you'll hear about later will help us to address that. And within the training, we look at six different ways that cultures differ. And one example of that is direct and indirect speech. So what do I mean by that? 
Imagine you're in a room or say in an office and the window's open and you want to close the window. If you're from a culture that uses indirect speech, you'll say something like, it's rather chilly in here. And the idea is then that people make the jump and then they decide, gosh, it'd be a good idea to close the window. If you're from a direct culture, you're more likely to say, I'm feeling chilly in here. I'm going to close the window. Slam. That's, that's a cultural difference. It's not that one is either right or wrong. So in the training, what we do is we ask people to stand on either side of a spectrum, depending on whether they're from a direct or an indirect culture. So we have the direct people at this direct culture, people at this side, and then we have people in between, and then we have the indirect culture people at this side. And then we ask them a question. Suppose you were at a dinner party and the host prepared you a meal, but you did not like the, the meal that they had prepared. How would you tell the host that you weren't going to eat that meal? So some of the people in the indirect culture would say, well, I had something to eat before I came, so I'm not going to take so much of, of your food. Others would say, you know, I haven't been feeling just so well recently, so I'm going to say no to whatever. We then went to the, the people in the direct culture side and we asked them, what would you think if someone said that to you? So one person actually said, well, if I knew that they weren't feeling well, I would make sure that next time they came, I would make the same dish again. <laughs> but some of the other people said, if I knew that those people were lying to me, I would be really angry with them. What that shows is that just by being true to our culture, we can easily offend one another. And we'll be looking at different ways that cultural misunderstanding can occur and what we can do about it. The good news is that you can use these skills in other contexts too. Some of you might be in cross-cultural relationships. And there's also another very important biblical command, and that is to welcome the stranger. And that's whether they come here to this building or whether it is people that you work with or it could be your neighbors around. The same skills are valid. One area I've been involved in for the last two years is at um, Grenfell Tower. It's a multi-story tower block in London and there was a fire there two years ago and sadly 72 people lost their lives. So the community there is very multicultural, very Muslim, big Muslim community, which is untypical of the rest of the borough. So I was helping some of the people there to learn how to relate well to the different faiths and cultures there. 
But whether it's a secular organization or whether it's a Christian organization or a church, it's the same underlying question. How do you treat different faiths and cultures with respect during our interactions? So that's a little bit about the, the learning. A little bit about myself. I'm from High Wycombe, but I'm not a native of High Wycombe. I'm from Northern Ireland, living here for 15 years. And that gives me a particular cultural insight. On the outside, I seem as if I'm part of the mainstream south of England culture, at least until I open my mouth. (laughs) But on the inside, I know that there are times when I'm not part of that culture. And I see people doing things around me. And I think to myself, gosh, that's so different to Northern Ireland. It's a very different culture there. So if you see yourself as part of the mainstream south of England culture, then I can identify and understand you because there are a lot of overlaps. But if you don't identify with that culture, if there's times when you grit your teeth at how people do things, then I have to say that there are times when I grit my teeth as well and I try to smile. So I can identify with, with both aspects. So I'd like to start with at a place where we are all together regardless of our cultural background. And it's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. He prays that for the church being rooted and established in love may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. We all want to grasp how big Christ's love for us, whether we're followers of Jesus or whether we have come this morning and we want to find something that's deeper than human love. But Paul adds something else that will enhance or enable it, and I've put that in question marks. So I want you to think what that might be. Does he say something that they should do extra? Is it something extra they should believe? Is it perhaps to be like someone, like himself, or to be with other people? The answer is, da-da, together with all God's holy people. In Paul's prayer, experiencing Christ's love is not something to do alone. There's many meanings for that phrase, but I want to highlight one of them. Paul writes to the Ephesians about us, and he's referring to the Jewish Christians, and to you, to the non-Jewish Christians. And he talks about historically how there has been a wall of hostility between them. Now they're together in one church and he writes about what that means in practice. So one meaning that fits really well with the theme of Paul's letter is that these two groups coming together will enable each to grasp Christ's love better. 
So we'll look shortly at why multicultural church might help us better grasp Christ's love. But for now, I want to think of another question, and it's what multicultural church might look like. So one model is a bit like the Eurovision Song Contest. So every culture gets their five minutes, and everybody is treated pretty equally, and that's how it works. I don't think that's what it was like in the Ephesian church, because Paul writes about an unequal relationship between the cultures, and that there were power relations between them. He describes the Jewish cultures, and they were the first to hear. They were the means of others hearing, and that the non-Jewish cultures received it from them. So the Jewish culture up here had a head start. The Jewish scriptures that were available were the Jews had used them for many years. So again, they had a head start over the non-Jewish culture, what we would call the Old Testament. They also had traditions going back hundreds of years. So it wasn't an even balance of cultures. It was up and down like this. Usually in multicultural churches, it's not a Eurovision model, where, but one culture is well established. And because of that, that culture traditionally holds the say on how things are done. Whereas other cultures here are newer and they're less involved in how things are done. I worked for a while with an Afro-Caribbean church and one of the big issues for them was we are well established within our own culture, but how do we reach out beyond that to different cultures around us? So it's a common issue in any church. It's not unusual. So I want you to think as well for a few moments. How do you think the well-established Jewish Christians up here, with all their traditions, felt when Paul prayed that they would grasp Christ's love together with these non-Jewish Christians down here? Were they glad that the non-Jewish Christians were coming up to their level? Were they indifferent that it would make any difference? Or were they fearful that they would have to give up their traditions and come to this level? How do you think, too, the non-Jewish Christians felt? Were they pleased that they were now going to be treated equally to the Jewish Christians? But then the question is, how would the Jewish Christians react? I don't know what you think. I suspect there were deep feelings on both sides. Maybe there was joy on the non-Jewish Christian side that they would, have, they would not have to adapt to a different culture in order to be part of this new community. I suspect too there was sadness among some of the Jewish Christians about what they might lose. 
There's a spectrum of responses recorded in the New Testament from the Jewish Christians. On one side, some of the Jewish Christians went as far as saying, for those non-Jewish Christians over there, it is inconceivable that they can be Christians without taking on our traditions and that in order to be part of the community, those Christians will need to change the non-Jewish Christians. In the middle, you had um, James, who was the brother of Jesus, and he had a compromise solution. He, had, he spoke about this at a conference in Jerusalem. And he said, for the non-Jewish Christians over here, out of respect, they do need to keep some of the traditions of the Jewish group. It's nothing to do with them being Christians, but just to show respect. On this side here, you have Paul, and Paul stood with the non-Jewish Christians, and he took quite a radical approach. And he asked the question, what was the deeper theological meaning behind the cultural expressions? So he tried to separate culture and theology. And for example, he thought about sacrifice. And the Jewish Christians over here would still go up to Jerusalem and they would perform the sacrifices at the temple. And Paul asked the question, do these non-Jewish Christians also need to be involved in, in doing sacrifices? Paul went away. It says that at one stage he went away for three years and he thought about it. And when he came back, his answer was yes, that these non-Jewish Christians still needed to be involved in sacrifices. But Paul also noticed two other very important things. He first of all noticed that the God that they worshipped was so much higher than any of them could reach. He also realized that whatever sacrifice the non-Jewish Christians would make, that it would never reach the high God. So what happened was, instead, God sent a sacrifice that would be good enough. And God sent his son to be a sacrifice for the non-Jewish Christians. And all the non-Jewish Christians had to do was to trust in God's sacrifice. The Jewish Christians over here also thought about that. And they started to think, when we go up to the temple in Jerusalem and we perform our sacrifices, what does that really mean? And they started to realize that it's not an end in itself, but all of those sacrifices are actually pointing towards a greater sacrifice. And that's the sacrifice of Jesus for them. And that's 
described. There are letters to the Hebrews, for example, that describe that, that thinking. So you had two different cultures here. You had the same theology, the same thinking about how do we, how do we be right with God, but you had two different cultural expressions of the same theology. One of the big challenges for multicultural church is how do we separate culture from theology? The Jewish church over here was not able to do that and it died. The non-Jewish church over here was able to do that. They made a difference between culture and theology and they flourished. In fact, it's why we're here today because we're from the non-Jewish branch of the church family tree. And the interesting thing is that when they had done that once, when they had separated culture and theology once, they were then able to do that with other cultures and they were able to apply those same skills in different places. That church flourished and separating church culture from theology is not easy. For the early church, it took most of the life of the New Testament some of the things that you will need to work out here as a multicultural church that might take years. I know that speaking with the vicar in Southall that I was working with, um, she is, has worked through many things and is still working through them. I won't be able to give you the answers to do that. But what I can do is to help you to be able to ask the right questions to highlight areas of church life that are affected by culture and the issues that they raise. And we will do that a bit within the, the training time. I said earlier that I would come back to how working across cultures helps us better grasp the love of Christ. And I can talk about my experience in Southall. I could give you many examples but one comes from working with the Muslim tradition. I heard of a meeting among women about, how prayer, about what prayer meant to them in each tradition. So a Muslim woman spoke and then a Christian woman spoke. And because it was a women's meeting, obviously I only heard it secondhand. But the Muslim woman at the end gave this challenge. She said, you Christians try to fit prayer around your life. Why instead do you not fit your life around prayer? That really challenged me. And of course, Muslim practices come out of early Middle Eastern Christian practices. So effectively, we're connecting into an old Middle Eastern culture. I've also realized when I go to Hindu and Sikh temples that I need to take off my shoes and wash my hands. 
And that's a way of preparing myself to enter the place of worship. And I was really encouraged this morning that at the start of the service, we just took a bit of time to be quiet, to forget about last night strictly or much of the day. And how do we make the shift from that environment into a time to think about God? I've also learned a lot about hospitality from those cultures. But these are just examples of how the church interacting with different cultures helps us see things in a different way and gives us new approaches to how we can grasp Christ's love. Finally, we want to look at how we should think about culture from Scripture. Just a general comment first, though. You will come across websites about culture and individuals who use selected verses from Scripture to put cultural diversity in a very bad light. Typically, they use selected passages such as a curse that is mentioned in the story of Noah, and they interpret that to support racist attitudes. That interpretation was implicitly endorsed by a highly influential Bible commentator hundreds of hundred years or so ago called Schofield. And that has profoundly reinforced attitudes to race in some parts of the Christian community there. There's also a line from a sermon that Paul gives in Athens where he describes each nation having a time and a place appointed by God. And again, that is used to promote racist attitudes. When you come across people who are using isolated verses like that to reinforce their position, my rule is always, always, always ask, how does it fit with the big narrative of Scripture. By big narrative, I mean Scripture in four stages. So first of all is creation, which is the Garden of Eden story. Secondly is the fall, human rebellion against God in the garden, and also its consequences later. There is then restoration, which is God's kingdom partly restored on earth through Jesus Christ. And finally, we have the new creation, and that's God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. What I want to do is to look at stories from each of those four stages and just to see what sort of principles emerge from them. So I start, first of all, with creation, it's really striking how non-cultural the story of creation is. It doesn't say on the eighth day God made all the different cultures. One big marker of culture is language. The two are closely connected. And if you want proof of that, if you can ask a Welsh-speaking person, any in the congregation here, 
The story actually says at that time, people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. And there's no record of cultural conflicts. That sense of world unity is very strong within us. John Lennon wrote, imagine there's no countries, nothing to kill or die for, only brotherhood of man. And that resonates with a lot of us. Within Islam, there's the concept of Ummah, and that's a worldwide brotherhood. And that's seen when every Muslim in the world points in the same direction at the same time as much as possible. In Christianity, it's expressed when we take communion. And scripture says that when we eat of one loaf, we all partake of one body. And every Christian in the world eats bread from one loaf. And again, that expresses our sense of unity. So how should we use this creation story when we're thinking about culture? Should we strive towards cultural unity? And if so, which culture should it be? So some of you might be saying, well, it would be nice if it was my culture. But that raises the issue that it's just not practical to have unity in that sense. But let's hold on to that principle of unity and let's move to the second stage of the biblical narrative, which is the fall. And soon after the fall, the consequences were seen at the Tower of Babel. And the story describes that after Eden, people wanted to build a tower and a city to stop people from scattering all over the earth. But what happened was God made them speak different languages so that they would actually scatter over all the earth. That raises a big question for cultural diversity. Did our diversity come about as a result of human sinfulness? Is it a bad thing? I would like to give a different interpretation. First of all, it's notable in the Bible text that the word curse is never actually used. That, that has been added by some commentators of Scripture. The other thing I would note is that beforehand, God had given commands to Adam and Noah to have family and to spread out to fill the earth. But people didn't do this. Instead, they wanted to be in one place. And the tower and the city of Babel was a means for them to do that. So effectively, when God created the languages, God was helping them to do what they should have done and causing them then to spread out. There's an important principle from this stage of the, of the Bible story. God always intended people to diversify, which means that your culture is not God's 
plan B. If you don't believe me, we'll move on to the next stage, which is restoration. And we look at the day of Pentecost when we get a taste of God's kingdom on earth, which is now already, but it's not yet fully. The big question is, did Pentecost reverse Babel? If it did, then what we would expect is that the Holy Spirit would come. There would be people from every nation and everyone would start to hear and understand just one language back to before Babel. Instead, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes. The text says there were Jews from every nation. But the next part is really interesting. It says that each one heard in their own language. So the diversity of languages was maintained. They didn't go back to one language. God didn't reverse Babel. Instead, God blessed the diversity of languages and cultures. If you still don't believe me, then we will go on to the final stage, which is the new creation. And what happens there is the Bible gives the final outcome of the different cultures hearing in their own language about the wonderful things that God has done. And it describes it as a place for every tribe and language and people and nation to worship God. So again, we have the unity back there from the creation story. But along the way, we have diversity, which is also important. And we see that here in the final stage. So where does that leave us now? We can bring that about a bit in the church here by welcoming the many cultures that come. But we can also show in society how we treat other cultures in our everyday interactions. We treat them as cultures that are a blessing from God. Finally, I want to summarize about what together with all God's holy people means. First of all, it means we will grasp Christ's love for us from new cultural perspectives. When we learn about our cultural differences, then it helps us to better grasp what Christ's love really means. Together also means that we need to think about our cultural assumptions within our own faith practices. How do we separate what is cultural and what is theological so that we are open to other cultures like the early non-Jewish church? Together also means that we will see every culture as being included as part of God's holy people, that no one can look down on you because of what culture you are. I hope that this has been a positive perspective on your culture. 
and that that is your experience as you mix with other Christians and with, with society around you. But what I hear on the media says that for some of you, this is not the case. Thank you for listening this morning. At this stage, I'm going to hand over to Steve. And I'm aware that this topic has resonances for our society. So Steve will just say a little bit about how we can pray for you or help you in the situation you're in. But thank you very much for listening.